We are going to roll right into the next session, uh, which is going to be the GIO roundtable. Um, uh, and I can't use a trackpad. What is going on here? <laughs> um, so I invite David Carter to the stage, who's going to be our moderator today. David serves as the Geospatial Information Officer for the U.S. Department of the Interior. Uh, he leads the DOI Geospatial Advisory Committee, which consists of geospatial leads for 11 bureaus in the offices of the Secretary. Um, in his role, he's also the managing partner of the Federal Geo Platform at geoplatform.gov. Advance one slide. Go down the okay. There yeah, go. I was getting there. Good. All right. All right. Well, thank. Well, thank you. It's one. Is this working? It's one lagged, so that's really weird. There we go. All right. Yep. All right. Is it, okay, it's working. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction, and I'd like to have our panel members introduce themselves. So, pass the microphone. You, you go. <laughs> we know who he is. Okay. Uh, my name is Jesse Rosell. I'm with FEMA headquarters out of Washington, D.C. I run a team called the Natural Hazards Risk Assessment Program, and we provide uh, risk assessment data sets, tools, and methodological guidance for the emergency management community, um, and all of which are um, geospatial based. I'm Ron Cicada. I'm the Geospatial Information Officer for USDA, as well as the Senior Agency Official for Geospatial Information. And USDA, uh, with uh, over 70,000 authorized users of uh, GIS software, both uh, commercial and open source, uh, pretty much uh, every aspect of each and every one of our agencies and offices uh, runs uh, on, uh, on geospatial products. Uh, we we have um, we have uh, trade uh, forecasts that are entirely driven uh, on geospatial loan programs and conservation programs, rural development uh, that runs uh, on geospatial engines. We have our uh, outbreak uh, folks that deal with animal and plant health diseases. Uh, all of these forecasts run on geospatial uh, frameworks. Uh, there's hardly uh, an aspect of USDA that does not. Uh, take advantage of uh, of this uh, uh, of this um, of this world, and yet uh, our challenges uh, remain uh, uh, developing. Whether it's the frequency of agricultural uh, uh, disasters or, or the uh, challenges of uh, feeding the world over the next uh, 10 years. So I uh, look forward uh, to uh, continue to uh, integrate our work and uh, ensuring that the uh, total is greater than the sum of its parts. All right, well, thank you. So we, we have a number of questions here that we're going to just open up to the panel and have a little discussion. And towards the end, depending on how much time we have left, we'll have, we can have some questions from the audience. So the, the first thing that we've got here is how, in, your, in your agency, so how, how much open geospatial software is used in your agency, and are you trying to grow that use? So. 
I could start. Um, when we're asked uh, about our open source usage within FEMA, I usually break it down into open source software, open science, and open data. Um, open science and open data we use frequently. Um, uh, we manage a, a couple of risk models, one called the National Risk Index that looks at your uh, natural hazard risk from 18 different hazards, as well as social vulnerability and community resilience impacts around the nation, um, as well as our HAZIS model. And both of those, it's immensely important for us that our scientific methods are open, transparent, and credible, um, as well as our data sets. So not only do we put all the data out in an open data format with excellent metadata, but we also have to back that up with thousands of pages of technical information on which science organizations we worked with, the exact methods we used to calculate these losses, and all the way down to the geospatial processes we used to tie all of this together so that someone could reverse engineer what we've done um, if they want to dig deeper in what we do. Um, and additionally, we um, develop um, quite a few open source tools uh, for our HAZIS program um, that we share the source code out there um, freely. And uh, we also use um, Esri software quite a bit too because we are a large organization as well. So we kind of do both. So I'll mention briefly, uh, in terms of uh, open source and uh, growing our open source community, um, we are incipient um, in that process, but nevertheless very serious. I have to tell you, um, this is the first time uh, I come to this, uh, to this conference. Uh, just in the first session, I attended um, prompt engineering, and uh, my reflection from that discussion and from visiting with you um, is that uh, innovation uh, lies largely in the open source community. There, there's no question that the kind of uh, work presentations, and again, uh, just, uh, I just got here, and this is my first time. Um, at USDA, we have uh, over 30 years of uh, working with uh, commercial uh, software. About 1%, uh, give or take, of our 70,000 plus users uh, work on uh, open source. The applications tend to be a niche in the sense that uh, if you're doing uh, remote sensing analysis, if you're trying to derive uh, croplands from satellite imagery or high altitude uh, fixed wing capture, you're, you're gonna do that uh, with open source products, almost as a rule. You're not gonna use some of these large uh, commercial packages. However, starting this year, uh, just about a month ago, our program manager for our Enterprise Geospatial Management Office and myself, I'm the executive uh, uh, leader for the geospatial portfolio, announced a, a diversification initiative. That's uh, one of the reasons we're here today, because we're get educated about the possible and increasingly um, characterize the work that we do and the training we do and how we characterize staff in terms of training being done with commercial products and starting to map capabilities between the open source community and um, from the human resources to the technology part to map to the commercial products we, um, we currently use. So uh, we are very committed. Uh, 
uh, diversification of the portfolio are, is going to make us long-term stable. But again, uh, I also see the uh, tremendous advantages in our work internationally. When we're trying to uh, share products with uh, uh, developing countries, it tends to be uh, my first experience uh, recently with open source was developing uh, epidemiological forecasts uh, for Jamaica for pest management uh, with, with grass. So I see a lot of opportunities for growth. Very excited, but I have to confess uh, we're just starting. Just very, very happy to uh, to be here. Well, I'll just say for the Department of Interior, we, we've been using open source software for a long time, uh, but, it, but it's still a small percentage of a lot of the work that's done. And we, we are looking to grow that use, um, just like USDA here. We're looking to diversify more, uh, just to try and see what workflows and what kind of analysis and all, and what, what can we send to, to a variety of software. The uh, the, the geo-platform itself is largely developed on open software. So a lot of it is, is cloud-native processing, uh, open software is behind the scenes, and that's really what drives the, the work in the geo-platform. So. Uh, so our, I guess, leading leading into that, so if, if we're looking to diversify, we're looking to grow the use of open source software across our agencies, so what, what do you have to consider? H how do you plan for working in like a, a multi-software hybrid environment? So. So we, um, we hear comments around FEMA a lot. We've got a lot of tools, and it adds a lot of complexity. And why are there so many tools? Why isn't there just one tool? Can't we make one tool that does everything? Um, I always um, recommend that we don't do that, because to make one tool that serves all program needs and all stakeholders throughout the country um, would be a significant challenge to get everyone's priorities in there and to meet the user needs of everyone. One thing we do emphasize is uh, a common nationwide uh, data framework and a risk assessment framework to make sure that the sea of tools out there have uh, recommended and documented use cases, interoperability, and things like that. So we really try to emphasize interoperability of data and not just data sets, but workflows and program outputs across our enterprise, um, whether they're open source, whether they're proprietary software, et cetera. And, and I think you also have to consider certainly this, you know, anytime you introduce a software stack in your portfolio, you have a number of security issues that, that you know, you sort of, from the uh, overhead perspective of managing multiple software packages, you inherit twice what you do when you have just one. So I think when you're considering that sort of integration, it's it's hugely important to make sure you have your IT staff on board and, and you're ready to go through the accreditation process and things like that, I think. I think in terms of the approach, uh, we're, we're looking at separating the IT geo part from the so-called business part, the applications and the data capture. Uh, so what, what, I, um, what we're looking for is uh, aspects of uh, network optimization, uh, your uh, data pipelines, uh, moving data around between agencies, optimizing geospatial data pipelines, uh, optimizing streaming analytics, and um, 
in monitoring costs, if you're working in a, 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 a dual environment though, where we uh, we try to have complementary capabilities from uh, the commercial side and uh, the open source side, we need to understand what that migration I is going to look like. So now in that migration element, uh, we move a little bit beyond the IT side and into the business side, trying to understand, as has already been uh, mentioned here, what the workflows are and what those look like and what those costs of migration uh, in terms of training our cadres um, and uh, hosting these different uh, open source problem uh, platforms is going gonna, is gonna to cost us. So we, um, we have a very uh, deliberate approach and it begins already with our uh, updated uh, workforce development strategy, which uh, you know starts to map what we call a uh, geospatial specialist, what we call a, a GIS analyst, what we call somebody with core you know um, capabilities, and develop a, a common denominator across. Uh, our certifications from commercial products with certifications, uh, you know, using, say, QGIS uh, and otherwise. So, again, our approach is to separate uh, the native IT geo from business and uh, and develop uh, developing uh, close attention to cost. But uh, beginning again uh, this year, um, looking at the people force uh, first approach and developing that workforce uh, development strategy geo, which we hope. Uh, to be able to publish just in the next couple months. Well, and for us, we're we're trying to emphasize keeping data into in open formats. So even if you are using a commercial data set or any data set or any software, sorry, uh, the end product needs to be made available in an open format so that anybody else can use it. You don't have to buy that software in order to be able to use the federal data. So that's that's one of the ways we've been trying to do it, which which kind of leads into our, our next question for the group here is what what makes data authoritative? That's a tricky one, and and uh, and often a source of contention sometimes. I, I think an easy answer is if you you have a clear statutory requirement to create a data set from Congress, that data set is clearly authoritative. Um, I would say though, um, I've seen the word authoritative used a lot for in place of best available data, and I think best available data is a better fit in often um, a lot of instances because the right data set may depend on the specific use case, and it's not always as clear as yes or no, or this data set or that data set. So um, we, we and, and FEMA have used authoritative data as a term a little bit less and less because the landscape of hazard risk is so complex and constantly changing. And I think Carter's got a panel this afternoon on authoritative data. You, you might you might want to plan to plan to attend. So. <laughs> but it will be a really exciting discussion, and and I do think authoritative has a very particular legal meaning. So I think we misuse that term to mean a lot of things that it doesn't really mean. But. 
So we have a, we have a definition. Uh, we just published our departmental regulation. Obviously, you don't have to uh, take this down, but it's a departmental regulation 3465-001, uh, where we've uh, defined authoritative data uh, as, a, as a starting point. Uh, I'll tell you what it is in just a half a second. It is essential that we, uh, that we get on the same page with what we mean by authoritative data, because uh, the pedigree of data, uh, open data, is really important. Um, if you're going to work in federal space, we need to understand what constitutes uh, authoritative. For USDA, for USDA, authoritative data, as already been mentioned, if it's, if it's required by statute uh, to collect this data, a lot of our soils data, a lot of our imagery data, cropland data, is required by statute to be collected. Uh, that is considered authoritative. We consider that if the data is going to be informing policy or management, that data has to be authoritative. Because if you're going to be, again, I think about the opposite. If you're running policy, informing policy, or uh, advancing management programs for farmers and ranchers and producers and landscape uh, managers, what's the opposite of authoritative? Uh, it, it, obviously, that's not a pleasant thought. And if the data is going to be made public by a non-research organization, it's going to make the data public, uh, that has the stamp of USDA on it. Uh, again, non-research, uh, and there's a reason for that exception. Then that data is considered authoritative. That being said, um, when we talk about open data uh, uh, from whatever source, uh, you know, synthetic data, crowdsourced data, uh, data that is shared uh, by academia, uh, we, we need to uh, advance a shared understanding of what those parameters mean. Ultimately, authoritative data in general for us, independent of those uh, four attributes that I just gave, uh, all of it has to have metadata that is valid and machine readable. And all of it, uh, whether it's inclusive in data, uh, metadata or otherwise, it needs to have indicators of quality so we can uh, speak to the uncertainty about it. So with those parameters, uh, we're advancing our inventories and data catalogs, something that we just started a year ago. Okay. Thank you. So you, you mentioned you mentioned crowdsource data. So is is there? <laughs> so that that is that's kind of a new newer area for Department of Interior. Uh, we've had some experience and trials with that, uh, particularly with the USGS and the the Trails Initiative that just got kicked off here. Where we're looking to support that as well. So is is there a role for crowdsourced or public resource data in federal government? Like, uh, I mean, I think absolutely. I think it's one of the really exciting places we have an opportunity to rethink how we're doing our, you know, our data. And I, it, you know, do, it, it presents a lot of really interesting questions and opportunities, right? Do, do we need to create our own data? Do we even need to store our own data? What are, what are, you know, what's the the line between agency data and agency responsibility, and what can we use volunteer geographic information for? And I, I think. You know, this is a place where we can all really start to rethink how we think about our data and what does it mean to have data, because there are huge changes in in industry. I mean, OpenStreetMap clearly is a huge, you know, player in this space that 
makes us ask these questions of like, what does it really, you know, what does it mean to create data or to update my data? And how can I take, you know, how can I partner with the nine or so million people that are creating data that can do things or editing and updating data that can do things on us at a speed and scale that most agencies can't possibly compete with. And then, you know, brings in questions of authoritative data and, you know, what does it mean to have a, a data set that's maintained, you know, by nine million people but is it best available? Is it fit for purpose? Is it authoritative? And, and I think it just gives us a real opportunity to rethink, you know, and ask ourselves some really basic questions that we thought we always knew the answer to, which is like, it's got to be mine. I need to do it here. I have to own all of it. I have to do all of it. And it has to be, you know, tied in. And so I don't think there's an answer, but I think there's a huge opportunity there for us to, to rethink how we do this work. Yeah, I would echo all of that. Um, a lot of opportunity, and I could see immense value in that um, in, in the disaster risk space. Um, when we look at the risk assessment cycle, we have to look at you know all the, the buildings in the nation, the infrastructure, the population, the hazards, and then how we calculate risk. And as soon as we're done, we have to start over because everything in the country's changed. So I, I could see a lot of value in the ability to better leverage uh, crowdsourced data. One thing I know that. Um, uh, is a challenge to us getting started, at least in my team, is uh, clearly defined best practices for governing efforts like that, validating it and integrating it into our portfolio of what we do. But I know it's out there. We just got to dig deeper. I'll mention some uh, anecdotes as opposed to anything uh, systematic uh, at USDA. Um, it's been useful. Uh, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago in the news, you were hearing about the murder hornet that kill people, you know, the Asian murder hornet. They don't call it like that anymore in the USDA. It's a terrible name, which is why probably I'm using it. Uh, because <laughs> it certainly caught a lot of attention. Uh, later, you heard perhaps of the uh, spotted lanternfly. It started in Pennsylvania, very, very damaging, and it's been useful uh, to um, working with, for example, Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture to uh, ask the public uh, to help us uh, define the perimeter, you know, how, how far it's spread by calling in information and then sending uh, inspectors to verify uh, those um, potential positives. So whether it's uh, these two anecdotes or otherwise, this kind of information does have its role. We acknowledge the uncertainty associated with it, but uh, you know, by baking in a process of verification and, and diagnostics, uh, it, it is very useful. The other part, my reflection is, you're using open data and crowdsourced data already. Uh, all of you probably are using um, LLMs already and sneaking behind government work into your personal computers and doing a little bit of strategic plans and proposals on ChatGPT. Well, guess where all that data is coming from? So it's inevitable, right? It's inevitable. Uh, we're, we're heading to an increasingly crowdsourced uh, world. So again, getting back to authorita authoritative nature of data verification, I think it's going to present a, an opportunity for all of us. And uh, I didn't mean what I said about you, I, you guys not uh, respecting the prohibitions that we have in place about not using uh, ChatGPT on your government computers. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I'm sure... Uh, 
Josh is the only one that does that. <laughs> uh, I'd also be probably remiss not to mention, you know, I think the, the Citizen Science Act is, is a great uh, indication of the federal government's kind of understanding and, and embracing this idea of, of volunteer information, not just geographic information. But I'm not going to pretend I'm a Citizen Science Act expert here, but, you know, it, it, it provides some authorities. That's often the tricky part in the federal government is, is what do I have, who do I have the authority to work with and in what manner do I have the authority to work with them? And I think the Citizen Science Act really starts to lay out some of the, the capabilities we have to work with, you know, citizens, a.k.a. volunteers aka crowdsource data and, and bring it into to the federal government. So I think the government is recognizing those opportunities and, and really starting to open some doors there. All right, so so with all, all this new data that's available, you know, a lot more than we've ever had in the past, does this make a challenge for having uncertainty in our maps? or anything that we publish or try and use? Or do you want to? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, uncertainty is, is, and particularly in the hazard risk space, there are compounding uncertainties. There's uncertainty in our source data. There's uncertainty in what we know about buildings, what we know about the extent and depth of a flood, what we know about how to calculate losses from that. And there's uncertainty in every element of that. And then when we tie it together, um, I know at FEMA, we're looking at ways to tackle this in two ways. Um, coming up with methods to scientifically and mathematically calculate uncertainty, which is incredibly challenging, but possible. And the paths for that differ hazard by hazard. Um, and then just communicating uncertainty from a public messaging perspective with disclaimers, um, with reporting ranges of values instead of absolute values, um, saying, saying what we know and saying what we don't know about ha hazard risk in an area, uh, providing guidance not just through raw data, but how do you interpret this data, um, and and how should you use this data, and what other things you can look into. As uh, federal employees, which most of us are, I think uh, part of our responsibility is uh, to protect the United States uh, from claims uh, related to the work we do. Um, this uh, let me give you an anecdote. Uh, we're putting out uh, billions of dollars in, in, in uh, climate change-related uh, funding. And uh, you, you do that, for example, by um, looking at your old uh, imagery data, determining where uh, your forests are, and uh, characterizing uh, the nature of your soils relative to carbon capture relative to carbon capture. Or if you're looking at the emission side of the equation, trying to look at maps and derive uh, emission signatures for some of these uh, feedlots. And then uh, you're gonna accompany that with allocating uh, funds. 
getting back to the uh, defending the United uh, States from uh, legal claims and uh, otherwise uh, challenges, um, it is imperative that we're able to tell uh, what confidence do we have on our interpretation of that pixel in terms of the cropland uh, that uh, is sitting on top of it being uh, soybean corn or otherwise rangeland or having this X level of carbon capture. Now, um, how many of you uh, work with uh, research uh, or, or crazy scientists or yourself are a researcher crazy scientist? Well, I'm sorry for all of you. There's um, something inherent uh, in, uh, in GIS, and that's the layering of information. Uh, it, it is imperative that we track uh, the quality of that data. It's the most basic thing uh, that we have to do in order to utilize that data. And yes, uh, let's become friends uh, with, uh, with our researchers, our um, extra, extra aerial types, uh, statistician types, to understand, you know, how to uh, add and multiply and, and interpret um, the, uh, the individual distributions of uncertainty attached to each data layer as we inject them into forecast models and complex uh, forecasts. It's possible. It's possible. We were talking about this just earlier with uh, one of my colleagues. When I was much younger in TV at five, and you know this story, well, maybe you're not enough, old enough, but it, they were always the, the most difficult. Chaos theory started uh, in meteorology. This fellow, if you remember, the Lawrence equations from where first chaos was derived and studied. And these crazy people were so uh, audacious that they thought that they could uh, uh, track a, a hurricane and somehow tell the public to be careful. And they would talk at five o'clock, they would talk about the cone of equal likelihoods and uncertainty. They would describe that on TV. Today, they don't do that anymore. They, they show the track of the hurricane, they throw the old cone, you know, the uh, likely track, and everybody understands that. So for very complex systems, we've, we've, we've come up with geospatial approaches to characterize and communicate uncertainty. It is a challenge, and I tell you, from where I sit, it's one of the biggest opportunities we have going forward. Uh, we need to do a better job as we integrate information uh, to get comfortable. If the meteorologist could do it, uh, I'm sure we can too. All right, well, thank you. So just to kind of to wrap up our panel, are there, there any last thoughts or anything you'd like to share? Any best practices, worst experiences? Anything around open source software you'd like to discuss? Okay. Oh, we got one? I've got one. I don't know how I call this a worse experience. That's a little extreme. But not all open source software is free. And you, uh, even with open source software, we have to have an intellectual property review, look at the terms and conditions. Um, that's something we learn, you know, as part of our exploration into open source. I, I do have some bad experiences. I'll share my resume with you guys, and then you can read all about it. Um, 
I think the, the most positive experience we've had, uh, I was telling you about a diversification initiative, and that includes this meeting, is in getting to talk together and learning about the fact that Doug has already developed a lot of QGIS uh, training that is 508 compliant uh, and, and ready for us to load. So uh, some of the best experiences are always in getting together and, uh, and sharing best practices. By the way, I was uh, really impressed uh, with the uh, mapping uh, uh, prompt engineering. Uh, if you didn't have time to go to that workshop, uh, look out uh, because it's already here. Uh, and I'm hearing it for the first time here at an open source uh, conference, uh, not, not from our commercial providers, which uh, makes me very proud that uh, some of our team, uh, several of our team, are here today. When I got my resume, I'm not going to send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd say from from our experience, actually, um, one one good story I guess we've got is we used open source software to do a lot of UAS and drone processing. And when we had some questions come down on the security side of some other software that we were using, we actually were had a much greater success with our security people with the open source software because we could take a look at the code. Uh, we could show them what was going on and how it was working. And so that actually um, allowed us to use that versus software coming from other countries where it wasn't quite as open. So. So uh, with that, um, are there any questions from the audience, or we can move on to our next topic? Start with you. Thank you. Um, my name's Greg, and I'm a technical lead on the new uh, project at the USGS. And we've had, an, uh, 3DHP, hydrology, we've had interest from uh, various levels of government and potentially private sector about contributing their data sets, collecting it into our systems, spatial data systems. How do we keep their enthusiasm but temper their expectations? Because we're going to have to validate that data a lot more than our own contractor collected data. What's that balance that RRY, how do you want to characterize it? Boy, so so they want to contribute their data sets, and we're just—it's just, it's just a, a, you're just trying to figure out how to how to allow them to contribute. Boy, that, that, that sounds like an interesting one. That's, I don't know, has the NSDI looked at how others can contribute data and how we pull things together with that? I, I, I guess so, so it's just a matter that they're, they want to access into the federal system. Yeah. Um, boy, making that available, that's, I mean, that, that's an ideal situation, I guess, if we can crack it, but I don't know that we have. <laughs> Right. Um, boy, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we've got a good, good one, but that's a good thing to look at. Yeah. I mean, sorry. 
Yeah, I think I'd just add to, to David's comment. I mean, I think that is really something that as we look to, to how can we do better as a nation, that is sort of a perfect example, right? But it does illustrate the challenges of, you know, how do you integrate data from multiple sectors and then, you know, even to that term, right, is, is integrate the right word, you know, should we be validating it, can you use things like artificial intelligence to help do that work for you? Because I, I think just asking what are all, you know, what are our baseline assumptions there and, and are there opportunities to look at it differently? Because I think that's a problem we're all going to have to figure out how to deal with if we're taking data from non-traditional sources and integrating them. There are certainly, you know, the challenges you bring up. Yeah. Great. We have two more questions, so we're going to move along. But hopefully you can chat after. <laughs> All right. Hi there, yeah, uh, Matt Hansen, Element 84. Uh, I just wanted to talk briefly about standards. Uh, obviously, standards are super important. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, standards are super important. However, the problem is that they're changing all the time. And more importantly is that the standards that are currently being developed now actually, in fact, aren't standards. Uh, things like cloud-optimized GeoTIFF, Stack, GeoParquet. Uh, these are things that have been developed by the community and then later are perhaps, maybe, maybe not actually adopted by um, a, a standards body. Um, I feel like it's really important that government embrace a lot of these things that we're seeing become de facto standards, such as stack, but how do you weigh that against the fact that like, there's actually no proper governing body behind those in some cases? I mean, I think that those are great questions and questions that I don't think we're we're ready to answer. We we have a group looking at kind of the the FGDC standards process and making some recommendations forward. But I think you know even the, the like the way OpenStreetMap does tagging versus you know content models versus you know like you mentioned Stack and OGC standards and things like that. I think you know the an, another example of I think we really need to be smart about how we undertake and do things. You know is the way we have been doing standards the way we should be doing standards and how does that need to look moving forward and i think this community has a lot of opportunity to contribute to that conversation and help us understand you know what opportunities are out there and and what are the best ways we can move forward because this just gets harder and harder every day not just you know standards but the data integration question that was just asked i mean authoritative versus fit for use you know data i mean the number of people involved, entities involved, the proliferation of data, the, the integrators and all of these things, I mean, they're well beyond most of our capacity to deal with. So I think, you know, looking for help in, in all places that, that we can get it, I think, but, but re-looking standards and how we've been doing it and what's the, the way forward, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great question and, and we're, we're working on it. I'm not going to tell you we've, we've got it for sure, but. We have time for one more question, I think. Oh, 
Hi, Jackie Kazel, Bana Solutions. Um, I was wondering, in when you look at the ecosystem right now, and you look at the problem sets before you, right now, not two years from now, three years from now, ten years from now, what you want the future to look like, but right now, what do you view as your biggest blocker or biggest hole in the ecosystem? <laughs> so uh, what, what, one minute. All right. So real quick. Uh, yes. What what is my biggest blocker as as I see things now? Um, I, actually, right now for me, I think one of the biggest blocker I have is the the procurement process, uh, particularly with like open source software, because right now we do not have the skill sets to do everything that we can do with other things, and uh, the development time and the expertise with that just requires a different data set or a different skill set, really. So that's Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'm tempted to say resourcing, but I think that's kind of the, the easy way, <laughs> the easy way out. But you know, f figuring out what right looks like and how to sort of uh, organize and bring all of these groups with various interests and ideas and and bring it together. You know, national search comes to mind. This kind of data integration issue. So, some of these ways. You know, how, how do you how do you look at this process and provide the data? You know, I talked a lot about it in my brief, but providing data and information and the easiest way to use to people that don't aren't data people and bring that to bear on the hardest problems we have I think that's probably the hardest thing Maggie time say thanks to our panelists for all their great comments <laughs> <laughs>